Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that your spirit work through your word now, that it might cut deep down uh, into our hearts, exposing the reality that's there. And Father, I ask that you would lift our eyes to Christ this morning, that we might see him in greater glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Incognito, a British comic who was self-proclaimed as the most banned comic uh, in Britain, was halfway through his set on Thursday night, this last Thursday night, at the attic bar when he sat down on a stool at first breathing heavily and then falling silent. The attic bar owner, Ryan Mould, told CNN that Cognito sat down, put his head and arms back, and his shoulders were twitching. Mould added that Cognito had a flamboyant character on stage, which made it difficult to tell if something was wrong. In fact, Cognito had joked about possibly dying in front of the audience just moments before it happened. He said, imagine if I died in front of you here today. He spoke about maybe having a stroke or a heart attack. When it became clear that Cognito was not okay, Bird and others rushed to the stage and tried to revive him with CPR. They called an ambulance, which arrived at 10 p.m. Cognito died at the scene. Also last Thursday, former CNN Inside Africa host Sony Mathieu, the Kenyan journalist who hosted the popular international program between uh, 2014 and 15, collapsed on Thursday after complaining of stomach pain. Her sister, Faith Manu, said she reportedly exhibited signs of seizure and died while she was rushed to a hospital. She was 34 years old. Last week, we considered eternal life, the question that this lawyer brings to Christ. We talked about how we don't think much about eternal life in our culture. The Jewish culture had this question on their mind. It came up to Jesus often. Eternal life, they knew, meant to be salvation. Those who get to spend eternity with God, we considered the horrors of an eternal hell last, year, last week and the glories of an eternal heaven. This morning, I want to plead with you to value your soul and to fight your sin in the power of the Spirit, trusting in the good news 
of Christ. To take your soul seriously. Jesus says, what if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What kind of investment is that? What if you get it all, but give up your soul? The human soul never goes out of existence. It's an eternal soul. This is one of the most tragic accounts we see in the New Testament. We have a man asking the right question. The most important question in the world. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And not only is he asking the right question, he's asking the right person the right question. And yet there's something inside him that evidently makes this the most sad story we could ever read. What could be so wrong in this guy's heart to have him miss out on eternal life when he gets the right question with the right person? Eternal life and earthly pride are like oil and water. They don't mix. Jesus said, if you find your life, you'll lose it. If you'll lose it, if you'll lose your life, you'll find it. You can't find your life and then get eternal life. Self-righteousness is the sin of this lawyer. I think self-righteousness is one of the most terrifying sins anyone can have. It's maybe the most deceptive and dangerous of all the sins in the world. Jesus in Matthew 21-31 says, Truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. And he's talking to the religious elite. He's talking to the Pharisees. Self-righteousness keeps religious people out of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to tell the Pharisees in that passage, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. When you saw Jesus do the miracles, your self-righteousness was so strong inside of you that it kept you from repenting. That was John the Baptist's ministry. Repent. Lose your self-righteousness. Look for mercy from God. Let me give you a test to see if you could be in danger of this soul-destroying sin. This sin can keep a person out of heaven. And this sin for a Christian can 
mar their relationship with the Lord and relationship with others. Here's the test. Is the Bible really important to you? Are your morals very important to you? Do you know the right answers to the big questions of the Bible and morality? Do you know what side of the line to stand on? Do you hang out with good people? Religious people? Are you disgusted by the way the pagan world rejects God and His laws? Do you enjoy comparing yourself to them? When you have an opportunity to talk, is one of your favorite conversations a comparison between you and the pagan world? If you answered yes to all these questions, you're a prime candidate for the sin of self-righteousness. It's deceptive and it's dangerous. It's so deceptive because it looks and sounds so good. And it usually is successful in drawing compliments and notoriety from God's people. God's people often speak well of the self-righteous and it feels so good to hear those things but it is deadly because it keeps people from look from looking to God for mercy and trusting in Christ it is one thing to believe in Christ it's another thing to desperately trust him and cling to him because you're devastated by your lack of righteousness. In this text, we get to see a man in self-righteousness miss out on the opportunity of his life. Point one in your notes is this. Ask eternal questions. Ask the right question. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why would this lawyer remember what the lawyer is? The lawyer isn't a civil lawyer for criminals, but this is an expert in the law of Moses. This is an expert in the Old Testament law. This gentleman's identity was probably built on his ability to know what was in the Old Testament law. Why would he want to test Jesus with this question? Well, up to this point, what we've already seen in Luke's Gospel is that this Jesus would be really confusing for someone like the lawyer. It makes sense that the lawyer's conscience is not doing so good because this teacher that's doing these miracles is doing things he would never do. In fact, in Luke 4, when Jesus stood up to preach in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, 
And he opened the scriptures to Isaiah 61 and read verses 1 and 2. And Isaiah 58, 6 and Psalm 146, 7 and 8. And then Jesus stood up and said, Today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of these prophecies. And they said, is this not Joseph and Mary's son? And Jesus was reading their mind. They were saying, we heard of all the miracles you're doing in Capernaum. Why don't you do them here? And Jesus says, how many widows were there in Israel during the famine when Elijah prayed? And God sent Elijah only to the widow of Zarephath. Whoo, that made him mad. They're saying, why aren't you doing the miracles here? And he's saying, oh, that's what your fathers were kind of saying. And then he says with Elijah, how many lepers were there in Israel? And yet God sent to Naaman to heal him. Well, you remember how that ended? They drive him out of the city and try to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And then, in Luke 5, we see Jesus call Levi to follow him, a tax collector, who was, is, a tax collector was as rotten as you could be. In fact, I know one. I can introduce you to him maybe after the church service. I shouldn't point out my... Oh, sorry, my... <laughs> Tax collectors were thieves. They would steal from the Jewish people to line their pockets. And Jesus calls one of them to follow Him. And Levi throws a great feast and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So imagine if you're a lawyer and you're watching this happen. Well, what does he mean by that? And then in Luke 7, when the Pharisee invites Jesus to a meal at his house and a prostitute comes in and begins to weep at his feet and anoint his feet. And what they say is, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So the lawyers struggling. Why is he hanging out with the people we wouldn't hang out with? And then in Matthew 15 too, they came to Jesus with questions like this. Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Why do they not wash their hands before they eat? And so this lawyer comes and asks Jesus what one must do to enter eternal life. Not only should we ask this question, but we should look at the eternal answers. The reason why I say eternal answers in your notes 
is because Jesus points them to the Word of God. The Word of the eternal God. Here's what He said to him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? You're the expert. You tell me how a person should enter eternal life. And He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In fact, when Jesus was asked what the two greatest commandments were, in Mark 12 and Matthew 22, Jesus gives this exact same answer. This is a combination of the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, uh, starting in verse 5, where the Jewish people would say this twice a day. And then they add to it Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was the right answer. This was a good answer. This was the answer Jesus gave when he was asked, if you funnel all the commandments down, what do you get to? And the answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll have eternal life. You got it. You know the right answer. Go do it. And you'll have eternal life. Well, this is hard. I don't know if his conscience is doing any better after this conversation with Jesus. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to Him to whom we must give an account. You sift the law down to these two commands and Jesus says, do them and you'll have eternal life. And the effect is being shown naked. Exposed at the root heart level of a person's soul. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul, speaking to the Jews, says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent. See, these are all those tests I gave you, right? Because you are instructed from the law, if you are so sure that you yourself are a blind to the guide and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that no one must commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is making an argument against the Jewish people saying, you know the right answers, but you can't keep the right answers. You may teach the right thing, but you don't live the right thing. That's why he culminates in this argument against Jews and Gentiles. All of mankind, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? This is Romans 3.9. No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, No one understands. No one seeks for God. You get all them negatives? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, just in case you missed it. Not even one. The law, we're told, by keeping the law, not one person will be justified. No one, by knowing the right answers and attempting to keep it, is going to be able to keep it. All are under sin. Now we know, Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means no human being will be found not guilty because they're good enough. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's how the law works. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So how comfortable are you with Jesus' answer? Keep the law, love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, enter the kingdom of God. But this lawyer surely knew Ezekiel 18.4, where God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall surely die. This is what the law proclaims to us. But in verse 29, look at the lawyer's response. Luke 10.29 But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? What a, what a terrible, what a foolish thing. Desiring to justify himself, he attempts to change the rules of the law. He evidently assumes that he loves God perfectly because he doesn't even talk about that. But he says, I'm, he must be thinking, I might be in trouble with my neighbor, so who's my neighbor? Maybe if I can get a definition of who my neighbor is, then I'll be able to uh, be a little more confident that I'm keeping the law and that I'll have eternal life. John MacArthur writes, wishing to justify himself, 
he failed to deny himself. Isn't this what Jesus has already taught in Luke 9, the chapter previous to this, when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me? Realize that there's nothing good here. You seek to preserve your self-righteousness in front of men, you're going to lose your life. But if you'll be humbled, if you'll declare no righteousness, no goodness in and of myself, if you're willing to admit that and turn to me, eternal life for you. This is exactly what the mistake of most Jews were with the person of Christ. In Romans 10, here's what Paul says. You can just feel the tears in his eyes. Brethren, my heart's desire in my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's like, I want the Jews to trust Christ. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They know the law, but they don't know it according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Self-righteousness is so deadly because you seek to justify yourself and you might be able to hold your image up in front of man better, but you'll lose your soul for eternity. So here's how Jesus replies to his question. So who's my neighbor? Jesus replied with maybe the most famous parable in the Scripture. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, whenever you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down because Jerusalem was up on a mountain. In fact, the road to Jericho was about 17 miles long, and you dropped 3,000 feet in elevation, and that's 17 miles. This road is famously treacherous, one of the most dangerous roads you could travel because of all the caves and crevices alongside this road. There was, uh, in the fact that you would be isolated on this road, you would be uh, in danger of robbers. And so Jesus makes up a hypothetical story. That's what a parable is. And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now a priest was a descendant of Aaron. It was the highest position uh, you could have in the temple to be a priest, to be in Aaron's line. This is the religious of the religious. And he's on the road, probably heading to Jerusalem. This is the idea, to minister in the temple. And the fact, the way it says it 
in the original language where it's translated into English, now by chance, causes the reader to say, here's the hope. Here's good news. He's half dead. But look, a priest is coming. Oh, good for, good. You couldn't have it any better than this. A, a priest is coming down the road. But surprisingly, he passed by on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, someone who wasn't from the lineage of Aaron, but the tribe of Levi, who were servants to the priest, surely maybe the priest didn't want to, you know, dirty himself, make himself unclean. Surely the Levite will help, but he also passed by on the other side. Despite both of these guys knowing the commands of God, knowing that they're to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor as themselves, surprisingly pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Oh, you want to talk about cringe-worthy. People are groaning at this point. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion on him. Now let me just give you a little bit of an idea what this would feel like for this lawyer to hear this parable from Jesus. Now when, the, when Israel split uh, after Solomon, the northern tribes were ten tribes minus Benjamin and Judah who made up the southern tribes called Judah. So Israel and Judah. And Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And they eventually fell to the Assyrians. And when that happened, the northern Jews began to intermarry with the, uh, with, uh, the Assyrians. And the southern Jews viewed them as half-breeds, Samaritans, who intermarried. These are not... Good people. And Judah eventually ends up being conquered by Babylon. And when exiles returned to Jerusalem to build the temple there, the Samaritans came and wanted to help them. They wanted to help rebuild the temple. Let's come together. And you can read about this in Ezra 4 through 6 and Nehemiah 2 through 4. And the Jews from the southern kingdom building the temple said, absolutely not. We're not building a temple with you. Well, this made the Samaritans really angry. So much so, they tried to stop the building of the temple. And they later built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Uh, but uh, it eventually was actually destroyed by the Jews in 128. <laughs> so when you want to talk about arch enemies... This, these are the arch enemies of all arch enemies to the Jews. So much so that uh, when Jesus came to the woman at the well, you remember what she said? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? That would never happen. That would never happen. Or when the Jews got really angry at Jesus, they say this, 
Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They couldn't say anything worse to Jesus than to say that. So Jesus says the Samaritan comes along. He has compassion on the one alongside the road. He went up to him, bound his wounds, pouring on it oil and wine for antiseptic, the alcohol, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now this is unheard of. He's, he's really putting himself in a position to be taken advantage of financially. He leaves two months worth of care for this man. This is, you're, you're, no one's ever going to do this for some. Maybe your best friend you might do this for. But a stranger on the side of a road. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So the question was, is who is my neighbor? Jesus changes the question and says, who's neighborly? Who's loving? This is Jesus' way of saying the prostitutes are getting in before you. The Samaritan man is doing what you wouldn't do. And you might think, well, I'm a good Samaritan. I would want to help someone like this. Well, yeah, but you need to do it all the time. This is how you have to love God perfectly, extravagantly, beyond what you can imagine. You have to love neighbors like that all the time. So we asked them, which one proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the term Samaritan. Couldn't even get it out of his mouth. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus evidently, once again, trying to show him the same gracious point again, says, go and do it. Go and do it. Go love like this. Love God like this. Go do it like this. The reason why I think he didn't is because we don't, Luke doesn't say, and then he saw his sin and trusted Jesus. Because what's the response? The response when the law of God shuts our mouth, holds us accountable, so that we have no hope, the response is what? To cry out for mercy. He's talking to the Son of God who's come to give Himself to sinners. Respond, point three in your notes, with humble faith. How do you respond to the law of God? You know, in John 12, in verse 42, you read this sad statement. It says, Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
So there's people that knew he was the son of God. They saw his miracles. They believed in the miracles. But because they didn't want to get put out of the synagogue, because they loved glory from man, they weren't willing to humble themselves. You see, on Palm Sunday, everyone's excited because Jesus, the king that's done all these miracles, is going to make all their problems go away. And yet, they don't realize, they haven't been listening clearly, that this king has called people to come and die. He's going to die, and he's asking them to come and die to themselves and then have glory. So when Christ doesn't look powerful anymore, doesn't look useful anymore, a week later, on Friday, they're ready to kill him. See, the gospel challenges us that way. Do you want to look good in front of men? You want to save your life? You want to save your identity and your uh, pride? You're going to lose it. If you want to humble yourself, deny yourself, and turn to the God of mercy, you'll find life. Let me read a few scriptures in conclusion to plead with you, to value your soul that you might turn to God for mercy. Psalm 32.5 says this, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So right now, if you're feeling guilty because you know you're not good enough, you can't keep the law, you haven't loved God perfectly, you haven't loved your neighbor perfectly, right now, pray to Him for mercy, for salvation, for grace, because in the rush of great waters, you won't do it. You see, you can be a comic up on a stage, a vulgar comic at that, and be making people laugh in the next moment, you swing out into eternity, never to change. Or a 34-year-old seemingly healthy young reporter with her whole life before her, and she swings out to eternity in a moment. And yet the gospel tells us as we're still alive, if you're here, you have such a privilege that countless souls don't have anymore to humble yourself admit your sin and turn to God for mercy Proverbs 28.13 says whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy there's some people here where you've been hiding sin for a long time but it's killing you And you know you're guilty. Let me read Proverbs 28, 13 again. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The tax collectors and prostitutes get into the kingdom of heaven because they admit who they are. The enslaving presence of sin as you hide it 
kills the soul. But as you come out and confess it to others and to God, God covers it with mercy. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here in about eight chapters, we're going to read another story that Jesus tells. Luke 18.9, And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So this is their problem. And treated others with contempt. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give the tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this that must have just made him furious. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, not guilty, rather than the other one. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Think of those words. Let me read it again. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. What great news we have in the Gospel of Christ. What great news we have that Jesus came to stand between God and man. Man deserves the wrath of God for breaking the law. And yet Jesus stands between as the mediator as the one who takes the, he's the propitiation, which means as the wrath of God comes at sinners, Jesus swallows it up, extinguishes all the wrath because he took our sin on himself. He lived the perfect life under the law that we could never live in our place so that when we are humbled and turn to God for mercy, we find it. Father, I pray that none of us would be so proud to chant swinging out into eternity in our own righteousness, but that you would humble us. That you would help us obey Romans 12.4 that says you shouldn't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with humble judgment. Father, I pray we would remind ourselves that anything we are, we're, it's only by grace. What do we have that we haven't been given? 
Make us a humble people that loves Jesus so much because he's our only hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.